gentlemen thanks for joining me on this uh last tuesday of october where I'm, today i'm going to be talking about this thing called the weibull distribution so today's conversation does involve a little bit of prior understanding but if you've never heard of the weibull distribution in the past don't worry there won't be there'll be precious few equations in fact i don't know if we have any which is always what students want to hear when going to talk about statistics and randomness and probability and things like that. Now, the Weibull distribution is used a lot in reliability engineering. A lot of people um, know why, but a lot of people also don't know why, but don't care. They just go through the process and trot out the Weibull distribution and use it in whatever way, shape or form a textbook tells them to use it to generate a number which gets fed to the decision maker, the boss, the manager, and all is well. But uh, that's not really what we want to be doing when it comes to the Weibull distribution. We actually really want to understand how this thing can help us, specifically in the world of reliability engineering, and how it can make us look a lot smarter than your average reliability engineer, which is ultimately what we are all about, obviously, tongue in cheek. So let's look at a random process. And here is my apparently now world famous random hand of failure, the hand that represents all the multitude of different factors and uncertainties, which uh, turn what is essentially a physical process into an uncertain process. Even though we know how things fail, we know that corrosion is oxidation, which is accelerated by H2O molecules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Problem is, even if we know it to that extent, there are always variations in factors which govern that chemical reaction or that fatigue crack growing or that uh, rubber perishing and so on and so forth. So we have to unfortunately deal with random processes when it comes to reliability engineering, which is really, really struggling because our primitive human, sorry, it is a problem in that our relatively Primitive human brains actually aren't really wired to deal with all the nuances that reliability and statistics and probability throw our way. So from this random hand of failure, we might uh, observe some data points. And what I mean by that is we might conduct a test and each one of these blue dots on the line represents a specific instance or a specific time to failure of a product. So Let's just say there's 30 blue dots on the line. That means that we might've conducted a test where we monitored 30 different products and we worked out exactly when each one of them failed and that time to failure is represented by a blue dot. Now you can see we have behind those blue dots, this orange shape, this bell curve looking thing. That's what we call the probability density function now a full description of the PDF probability density function is outside the scope of today's conversation. However, you can see that uh, the height of this PDF curve seems to correlate with the region where these blue dots occur the most frequently, where the density of those blue dots is the highest. And that's what the probability density function curve is. It tells us the relative likelihood of random variables having uh, certain values, which is why the higher the PDF curve, the more likely it is for you to see blue dots where that 
where the highest point of that PDF curve occurs. Now, for this PDF curve, it's a bell curve. Most of us have heard of this thing called the bell curve, and I've done plenty of other webinars which actually look at this bell curve in greater detail, and I'm not going to go over that in great detail today. However, if we uh, know what we're looking for as reliability engineers, which we should be, uh, we can see that this has a peak. This, has a, this looks like a mountain. And every time we see a PDF curve which has a peak, we know our system is wearing out. That is because of the underlying statistics. And we can certainly go through and prove why that's the case. But the main takeaway from this lesson and lots of other, not this lesson, sorry, this conversation, lots of other conversations, is that we should just be, we shouldn't just be looking for numbers or, or metrics or things like that. We should be trying to see what is going on. And if we create a PDF curve, we see a PDF curve which describes time to failure. And that, and that PDF curve has a peak, has a hump, has a, a, a top, an apex, whatever you want to call it. It tells us straight away that our system is wearing out. And that means uh, that our system is accumulating damage over time in a way that adds up. Now, this is not the only way a system can wear out. So for example, let's say I conduct another reliability test, live test, and I get these 30 data points here. You see the original bell curve still there, but now we have a different PDF curve. It is, it is uh, shallower. It's, it's not as nearly as, as high. It's more spread out, but it still has a peak, not a particularly sharp peak, but it certainly has a peak, a maximum. And again, that tells us that our system is wearing out. But if you know what you're looking for, you can see that because this PDF curve has a left uh, skew with a right tail sort of smooshed to the left, good reliability engineers will be able to see straight away that our system is, is wearing out, but the damage is multiplying over time, like a fatigue crack, where the longer the fatigue crack gets, the faster the fatigue crack grows. So the rate at which we accumulate damage multiplies as we accumulate more damage. Then we have this PDF curve here, which is a very different looking PDF curve. This PDF curve is anchored at the vertical axis where the time to failure is equal to zero. It has, uh, it's, it's not zero, it's not infinity. And it has a gradual but consistent exponential slope. And this is what a PDF curve looks like if our system is failing with a constant hazard rate. There is no peak. Uh, you, you don't count the anchor point to the vertical axis. That's not, not the peak. There is no peak. Um, and you can see the curve is constantly going down. So this is what happens when we system has a constant hazard rate. And as opposed to our wear out systems, means our system is never accumulating damage. So it never gets old. And conversely, it never gets better. So a 100-year-old system is just as likely to fail today as a brand new system. And let's look at another PDF curve again. You can see that data points are moving when we have a look at this uh, fourth and final PDF curve. This PDF curve hugs the vertical axis. It goes all the way up into infinity. It's not anchored. It goes all the way to the very, very top, so to speak. It hugs the vertical axis and has a very steep slope, which uh, very early, but it has a much more shallow slope later on. Now, this PDF curve tells reliability engineers, tells good reliability engineers that our systems are wearing out or experiencing infant mortality. And that means that we have a subset of, let's call them imperfect systems. 
And those imperfections, those defects, those assembly errors, those crystalline de uh, dislocations, whatever it is that is affecting a smaller uh, subpopulation, those are creating what we call early failures. And once our system is able to get through that in in initial period, the apparent reliability increases. Now, these four PDF curves, each one of them represent a different failure mechanism, which is really, really useful. And every single one of these curves is generated from this distribution called the Weibull distribution. The Weibull distribution is loved by reliability engineers across the world because it is a single distribution, a single way, a single model that allows us to understand or, sorry, characterize different ways our things can fail. And if we have a very complex system, we're going to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of different failure mechanisms. And, and uh, with that level of complexity, we need to really simplify how we look at failure in order to make better decisions. So here are four instances of the Weibull distribution. You might notice that you can see the bell curve, which some of you might think looks a lot like the normal distribution, and it does. The other wearouts curve, the second one from the right, so to speak, that looks a, that mimics the log normal distribution. And we're going to go into this in greater detail. It's just a uh, Weibull distribution is really, really good at monitoring, or sorry, modeling lots of different, very different failure mechanisms. And one additional feature of these four uh, probability density function curves is that they all have the same mean all the same mean time between failure. Now, the mean is a hypothetical balance point of these PDF curves if you turn them into an actual shape. And this is one of the many reasons why the mean or the mean time between failure is not reliability. It often feels like it's reliability. The MTBF has the word failure in it, so therefore it has to deal with something to do with reliability, surely. And of course, if the reliability is high, there is a general relationship with the MTBF such that the MTBF would also expect it to be to increase. But you can see that these four PDF curves have very or model very different failure characteristics or failure processes, but they all have the same mean. So you cannot just uh, be given the mean, for example, the hypothetical balance point, and then make really crucial decisions that are based on the shape of your PDF curve if the only thing you have is the point where it would hypothetically balance. But nonetheless, the fact that these four PDF curves are fantastic at modeling different uh, failure mechanisms means that because they all come from the same distribution, the Weibull distribution itself is very, very useful. So I've just said that all these PDF curves are from the same distribution, but you can see their shapes are very, very different. So where do these shape characteristics come from? Or where does the overall characteristics of any Weibull distribution comes from? Well, every Weibull distribution is defined by two parameters. The first parameter is called the scale parameter or the characteristic life. And that just gives us an idea of how long or how long something's going to last. A typical unit's going to last for something which is experiencing, obviously, a random failure process. So the scale parameter, in a, in a way, just adjusts the magnitude of the random variable or tunes the magnitude of the random variable. 
The second parameter is the most interesting of all. It's called the shape parameter. It doesn't have any units associated with it. And this shape parameter is what allows us to model all sorts of different scenarios. If the shape parameter is less than one, we know that our system has a decreasing hazard rate. Now, what that means is that functional or working systems are less and less likely to fail, provided they're still functioning. That's what wearing looks like. And this is typically what we see when we have those uh, subpopulation of imperfect products that are being um, uh, essentially weeded out in that early period of use. Then we have scenarios where the shape parameter is equal to one, and that implies a constant hazard rate. That's where things never get old, things never get young. And whenever the shape parameter is greater than one, things are wearing out. We have an increasing hazard rate, damage is being accumulated. And so this makes this shape parameter extraordinarily informing. It's one of the most important parameters in the world of reliability engineering because not only does it help us uh, fine-tune the wide distribution of lots of different scenarios, that single metric can tell us if we need to walk to the manufacturing line because we have quality control issues, and tell us if we need to walk to the design team because the design life does not meet with the customer or user um, mission profiles. And if it's equal to one, we know there's a constant hazard rate, which typically means it's failing due to randomly occur occurring external stresses. So let's look at one of our original PDF curves from the start of this conversation. This is a Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of around about 3.5. And it looks a lot like bell curves or normal distributions. The hazard rate for a system which is generating these data points, which are clustering around this, uh, this region here is this red line right at which a thing that is still working fails. And so when damage adds up, we, we have an additive wear out scenario like where our tires are wearing out. For example, we see this sort of phenomenon. So that's one example of how the Weibull distribution can model a very specific type of wear out. This type of wear out is modeled by a Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of around two. And like I said, it looks a lot like some log normal distributions, which are fantastic at modeling, for example, fatigue, things where the damage multiplies up over time. The wear out it tends to be uh, relatively straight, sorry, not the wear out, the hazard rate tends to be relatively straight over time. And for fatigue and corrosion and creep, we often see these sorts of Weibull distributions do a magnificent job of modeling times of failure. Here is that Weibull distribution, which is where the PDF is hugging the vertical axis. That means we have a shape parameter of one, which is better known as the exponential distribution. And so one specific example of the Weibull distribution is the exponential distribution where the hazard rate remains constant. Things are not getting old, not getting young, younger or better. And that means failures are being caused by catastrophic environmental st stresses. Those things that when they do come along randomly, um, they're so catastrophic that your system entirely fails. A really good example in electronic componentry is voltage spikes. When, uh, when you have a 6,000 volt spike come through your power supply, doesn't matter how old or young that capacitor is, it's about to have a very bad day. And then finally, 
This is what the Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of between 0.3 and 0.5 looks like. And empirically, and for based on some theory as well, we know that virtually every wearing scenario has a shape parameter of 0.3 and 0.5. So if you're having quality control issues, if you're having assembly issues, or if you're trying to manufacture, let's call them troublesome electronic components where it's just very difficult to create perfect crystals in your um, silicon chipsets, uh, you would reasonably expect to see a shape parameter of zero between 0.3 and 0.5. And that's very useful because if we see this sort of wear uh, hazard rate curve, this wear in, we know straight away where we need to look at or where we can start focusing our attention on improving reliability. We don't, uh, if we're seeing a, a decreasing hazard rate, it's, there's no point uh, going to our customers or users and saying we are use, they're using the thing in the wrong way or that the, uh, the end of life wear out uh, failure mechanisms are causing problems or what, whatever, whatever else you might initially instinctively look towards as opposed to what is actually causing failure. So the Weibull distribution can help us tell if our system is wearing in, wearing out, or doing none of those two things, i.e. it has a constant hazard rate. And most failure mechanisms have their own shape parameter. So let's look at the Weibull distribution in a little bit more academic, uh, with a bit more of an academic mindset. So, here are those four example PDF curves. One thing I have changed here, as opposed to them having all the same mean, they now all have the same scale parameter, the same characteristic life. You can see on the right-hand side that the ETA value for each one of these PDF curves is uh, 12. The shape parameter for each one of these curves is different. We have a, one where it's 0.5, one where it's one, another one where it's two, another one where it's 3.5. So these are all Weibull distributions, which clearly model very different failure scenarios, um, but they all have the same scale parameter. And they are, of course, all Weibull distributions. And so this is one of the most useful ways of understanding or characterizing uncertainty. This is the way that the human brain is best wired to try and either visualize or conceptualize the uncertainty of the world around us. If we look at the bell curve in the middle, that green curve, that is typically what our brains are hardwired, instinctively wired to uh, characterize uncertainty. We have a typical value. In this case, it looks close to 12. And then we have... Um, we have uncertainty either side of this typical value. That's how our if that's how our brains are wired. If someone tells you that their best guess at something is 12, our brains automatically, in a way, superimpose a bell curve over that best guess. So we say, okay, Tim said his best guess was 12. Therefore, it is most likely to be 12, according to Tim, and it's less likely as we move further and further away from 12 for that value to be correct, just like that green bell curve. But there are three other PDF curves here, which are very, very applicable to the world of probability and statistics. 
which our brains are not wired to conceptualize or understand. So the PDF curve is the closest thing we have to being able to talk directly to our brains using our highly developed visual senses to conceptualize uncertainty. But the PDF curve is problematic because it's really hard to get meaningful numbers. And that's where it becomes this thing called the cumulative distribution function becomes really, really useful. Now the CDF or the failure function gives us the failure probability of our product or system at a particular point in time. And that is where we start being able to take an understanding of the uncertain world around us and turn it into meaningful information to make better decisions. So the CDF is also the area under the PDF curve. The PDF curve, when you think about it, all that area under the PDF curve does is essentially allocate the relative likelihood of each one of those random variable values. So the area under that PDF curve tells us what the probability that our random variable is going to have, going to have a certain value between certain numbers. And so the area under our PDF curve gives us the failure probability at a particular usage. So let's use these PDF curves to generate CDF curves for the wider distribution. You can see for the for the uh, the bell curve. Oh, I might go back one and pause it there if I can. Oh no, my my, my animations are going to mind their own, so they're going to do it no matter what I say. So I'll have to give a preamble. What's going to happen is for each one of these uh, PDF curves on the left hand side, we're going to see the area under each one traced out from left to right, and the amount of the area is going to be scribed on the blank set of axes on the right hand side. So as you can see that um, uh, as you can see that uh, when we create these curves, that uh, the area is going to be analogous to the height of the curve in this blank right hand screen, uh, screen right now. Now, because my animations have been set up by this human, <laughs> and ideally I'd do it but in a different way moving forward, just focus on the animations you're about to see, and hopefully they'll illustrate the construction of each one of our CDF curves. We'll start with that bell curve. You can see the areas being traced out. And you, and you can, so my speakers decided to uh, change. I don't know if I'll be able to hear you if you guys reach out, but I'll, uh, um, oh, no, I'm back. My, my hearing's back, but my audio, I've had some audio issues at my end for a while. Okay, so sorry for that IT issue, but you can see that by tracing out the area under each one of these PDF curves, we created a CDF curve corresponding those to each one of those parameter pairs. So the green line represents the green bell, it was the CDF curve for the, uh, uh, that's uh, from the Weibull distribution, which gave us the green PDF curve or bell curve on the left. Now you should be able to notice something amazing. See that each CDF curve goes through the same point. So the CDF curves, these CDF curves on the right, which represent the probability of failure as our things get older. And as you can see, they start at zero, which implies that our system is working at time equals zero. And as our system gets older, the probability of failure increases, increases all the way to 100%, which essentially just means each one of our systems is going to eventually fail 
for these CDF curves, they all somehow manage to go through exactly the same point. Now, some of you might have noticed that this is not just coincidence. You can see that that point where they all where, where they all go through is actually above the characteristic life or the shape parameter. Where the shape parameter is 12, the uh, CDF for each one of these probable uh, distributions appears to be exactly the same. We're going to come back to this observation a little bit later on. It's very, very useful. But before we do that, let's look at another function that describes um, uh, or helps us characterize the random process that is failure. And the that is the reliability function, the probability that your system has not failed at a particular time, usage, or specified condition. It is simply one minus the probability that your system has failed or one minus a CDF. So if we are able to trace out our CDF curves, well, our reliability curves are essentially our CDF curves upside down because it's one minus a CDF curve. And you can see, likewise, our reliability curves all go through the same point at this at a characteristic life of 12. There's a reason for this. And that is because so here is the one of the very few equations you're going to see in this conversation today. This is the function. Um, I can see there's a couple of questions coming up from William, uh, one from William, William about the point at which it crosses over. I'm going to answer that question very, very shortly because you can see that the, uh, this is the equation for the reliability of the Weibull distribution. You can see where the two parameters exist. You can see the eta and beta are in there. You can see T represents the time to failure. And we have that weird number E or Euler's number, um, which is at the base of that exponential function. Now, a detailed description of the Euler function, Euler number is, out, is outside the scope of this webinar, but it's an incredibly useful number, which allows us to, for example, create functions like this, which allow us to directly incorporate parameters we care about, like beta and eta. So if the system has reached its characteristic life, what that means is T is equal to eta. So let's get rid of every single T from the equation, the reliability equation above and replace it with eta. So now we have an equation which gives us the reliability at time is equal to eta or the characteristic life of the scale parameter. You can see on the right-hand side that we now have eta over eta, which is equal to one. So let's substitute one into there. We simplify our equation. We also know that one to the power of anything is one. So we can get rid of beta over here. And now we have simply E or Euler's number to the power of one. Oh, negative one, I should say. And that when you ask a computer to evaluate for you is 36.788%. And that means the reliability of any product whose time to failure can be modeled with a, uh, uh, a Weibull distribution will be 36.788% at the characteristic life. Or another way of saying exactly the same thing, the CDF will be equal to 100% minus 36.788% or 63.212% at the characteristic life. That makes it really handy later on. And we'll uh, come back to that little, little coincidence that the Weibull distribution has given us. So there is the reliability function. 
you can see that the reliability function for any system starts at 100% and goes all the way down to zero. Essentially, it means that our systems will eventually fail. Now, there are some scenarios where the reliability function doesn't start at 100%, it starts at a lower number. Is anyone uh, willing to hazard a guess as to why that might be the case? Feel free to throw your answer or your guess in the chat window. Why might there be some reliability curves that do not start at 100%? Is there any reason why we might not have a reliability curve starting at 100%? Maybe this might help you. Is there any reason why we can't assume that every single system is working at the start of its useful life? Pre-aged item, fantastic. Perhaps it's been given to somebody else after it's been gone through some burning and perhaps it wasn't properly screened. A hot spare, it's been used and now it's being taken off wherever it's being, uh, it's, a, it's a redundant component um, and now it's been brought on back to life. And it might have already failed. Maybe it was losing life before the beginning of use. Fantastic. Uh, you talk about uh, previous operational use. Fantastic. We call these things or variations of these things, these things dead on arrival factors. And they're not just, the, not just caused by those scenarios, but they're also caused by, for example, your product being shipped to a customer or user and being tr uh, treated in a very, very nasty way by your distributor. Perhaps the... Uh, the mailman or mailwoman dropped the box containing your priceless uh, smart device. And, and that drop meant that uh, your smart device that you're hoping was going to work when you opened that box, when you got home from work, because it was sitting outside your front door, is now broken beyond recognition because the, uh, the um, delivery people didn't do a good job. Now, that might seem like it doesn't count, but it certainly does count. And that's why we need to take a, uh, make sure we design not only robust systems, but robust storage and packaging and handling. Um, uh, so what do we call those, that material, which makes sure everything is looked after when it's being posted from one point of the world to the other. It's also kind of a big deal for satellites. Uh, when you have, uh, for example, a bunch of small satellites being launched en masse, in the residual payload or bay of a spacecraft, most small satellite launches involve a pretty well understood 15% dead on arrival uh, dead on arrival rate. It's something the industry is trying to work on, but it's still definitely a thing. So the hazard rate though, I should have, well, I just left that topic way too early. So that's the reliability function. The reliability function, which usually starts at 100%, and eventually goes down to zero. And you see for the Weibull distribution that they all, every reliability function of any Weibull distribution has a value of about 37% uh, when it reaches its characteristic life. The last function I wanna talk about is one of my favorites, the hazard rate function, the rate at which a thing that is still working fails. The way we calculate that is simply divide our PDF by our reliability function. PDF gives us our density of failures. The reliability takes into consideration how many uh, systems are still working. And so be, all we need to do to generate a hazard rate function for a Weibull distribution is essentially divide the height of the uh, PDF curve by the reliability function. And so for all those example Weibull distributions we looked at so far, you can see on the left-hand side, the PDF curves and the reliability functions are superimposed. 
we get these four very different hazard rate curves uh, for each one of those scenarios. And that is at the heart of the Weibull distribution. It's a very, very uh, flexible, very, very useful uh, distribution or model that is, helps us really understand and characterize a vast array of different failure mechanisms. And so this means we don't need to have a huge library of models, a huge library of distributions to cover the overwhelming majority of real world failure mechanism scenarios. And not only that, the Weibull analysis that I talk about in other lessons, it doesn't even matter if your, if your process is, is modeled by the Weibull distribution or not. When we use Weibull analysis, you can actually suck out all sorts of useful information even when the data is generated by another distribution. That might sound mind-blowing, simpler than it sounds, but, uh, and it's, but certainly outside the scope of this conversation, but it's one of the, one of the myriad of reasons that uh, reliability engineers love the Weibull distribution. The model, a single distribution can model so many different scenarios. And so those are the four main functions, the PDF, CDF, reliability function, and hazard rate function. Now there's one other characteristic we need to be aware of for the Weibull distribution, and that is the mean. The mean is not an obvious uh, quantity from the uh, shape and scale parameters. You can see the equation for the mean here. All, that, all this equation is, is how somebody worked out what that hypothetical balance point is for every single Weibull distribution PDF curve. And you can see that we have the shape parameter, the scale parameter, this weird Greek uh, letter, uppercase letter called gamma, which represents this thing called the gamma function. And the gamma function is illustrated beneath the equation for the uh, mean of a Weibull distribution. And the correct response to seeing that equation is shock, alarm, dismay, perhaps PTSD, I don't know. But that particular function is not possible. For, uh, it's not possible for a human to evaluate that function using nothing but their brain and paper. And so the, the Weibull distribu distribution mean needs to be calculated with the help of a computer. Here are two Excel formula you can use. Use the bottom one if you need to identify the Weibull distribution mean and you have Excel 2003 and earlier. This, these are functions and a formula are in the workbook, which uh, the link to it has been provided by Fred in the comments window. So that's an overview of the Weibull distribution, but we're not done yet because Weibull distribution allows us, thing, can, allows us to do this thing called Weibull analysis. And Weibull analysis is tremendous. Why is that? Oh, come on, computer. Because it could be because this is one of the ways we can look at data and without equations having to do anything, uh, anything challenging or anything really, uh, I wonder where that tomato comment came from, Fred, thank you. It allows us to look at data and without having to use equations, suck out a lot of information. Now I've run out a lot of courses 
And the thing that piques the interest of my students the most is phrases where I start what I start with, we don't, we're not going to use any equations. So let's look at a scenario where we have our random hand of failure, which represents all the different pro, all the different uncertainties and, and factors of a specific random process. So let's just say we got a product and we're going to examine its time to failure. Or more specifically, we are going to examine the, the uh, time to fail, the failure characteristics of many products or several products. So this is the random hand of failure number one. Now let's just say that these data points were what we observed for that first random hand of failure. You can see they tend to be centered around the middle, which is good. Um, that's often how our brains like to characterize uncertainty. And let's just say that although we don't know it at this, this stage, this random process is modeled by a wobble distribution with a shape parameter of 3.5 and a scale parameter of one. Let's just say that. Now in the real world, we don't know what that distribution is. We, we, it's actually very hard for us to be able to see what's going on when those, we have nothing but those data points on the uh, horizontal axis. We might have some idea if, we, if our process was modeling things like wear out because we might know using our huge brains that wear out involves the addition of damage over, over the time, which means that we're looking at a bell curve-like process or bell curve-like PDF. And we know that the Weibull distribution, the shape parameter about 3.5 tends to mimic the bell curve really well. But that might be as far as we go. We, we might have no idea, as a rule, we have no idea about the failure process uh, that's given to us, that, that is pre presenting a bunch of seemingly random data points. So let's, let's do the same thing for another product or another process with this other random hand of failure. And it produces a lot of data points, same number of data points. And, but this case, the underlying process for this random hand of failure was caused by a Weibull distribution or modeled, I should say, by a Weibull distribution with a shape parameter of one and a scale parameter of 0 0.6. So we know straight away, this has a constant hazard rate, which could be caused by voltage spikes destroying electronic components. But of course, this is invisible to us when we do a test. All we get is a bunch of red and blue data points. And here's a third random hand of failure. And you can see, oh, geez, something weird's going on there. Got 30 data points. And if, but if uh, we're able to look inside the failure process, we might be able to uh, see that's this thing, or we won't be able to see it, but if we were to hypothetically, magically look into the failure process, we might be able to determine that the shape parameter is 0 0.4 and the scale parameter is six in this case, which means that because beta is less than one, we know this, this, is, uh, this failure process is being dominated by wear in. But of course, again, we will never know what those distributions are, those potential models that describe our three different failure processes, that if we knew what those failure processes were, we might be able to answer lots of really important questions. So if we are, if we are faced with just this spreadsheet of numbers, so to speak, how can we learn about these random failure processes from this messy bunch of data points without complicated equations, i.e. without this guy, 
This guy is the ponderous professor that in my other webinars I introduce as one of the many enemies of reliability, the guy who wants to make things more complicated, the guy who wants to analyze until he is happy, not necessarily when the decision needs to be made, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do we look at these data points without our ponderous professor over our shoulder, without complicated equations and actually get something useful? Well, the very first thing we might do is might transform our visualization from one where we just have those data points sitting on the horizontal axis to one where we have a uh, vertical axis now introduced and the height of that vertical axis represents the percentage of things that haven't failed. So as we have, I think we have more than 30 data points. It looks like closer to 100, to be honest, but nonetheless. So we have 100 data points for each process you can see on the left-hand side, very start, everything's working. So each data point, in a way, starts off at zero. But as things fail, percentage of things that haven't failed, um, sorry, this shouldn't be percentage of things that haven't failed, it should be percentage of things that has failed, gets higher and higher. So on the left-hand side, you can see percentage that haven't failed, that should be percentage that have failed. And that number gets higher and higher and higher and higher over time. Now, what this does is smooth out our data visualization so we can see trends, we can see different shapes, and that's quite useful to a point. Um, whenever we can smooth stuff out, that helps our brains visualize what's going on. But can we work out if a wobble distribution can apply to any of these? The answer is no. And if we assumed a wobble distribution could be applied to any one of these, how do we get those parameters? those eta and, uh, and beta parameters, which help us understand the nature of failure. Well, I'm going to hit the transform button. The transform button means I'm going to, allows me to take this particular axis where we have the percentage of things that haven't failed, have failed, I should say, on the vertical axis and time to value, time to find the horizontal axis and change the scale of each one of these axes in a way to produce something really special. So I'm just going to hit that button. And then what's going to happen thereafter is those scales will change the way I suggested to create this thing called Weibull probability plotting paper. You will see that on the horizontal axis, we now have a logarithmic scale. Each red line on the on horizontal, uh, each red line moving horizontally represents a factor of 10 increase. So you can see those green lines, on uh, those vertical green lines that hit the horizontal axis, they represent a logarithmic scale, uh, represent our time to failure, I should say, on the logarithmic scale. The vertical axis is still the percentage of things that have failed or the CDF, but there is now a really weird scale. And that scale is based on Math is based on some equations, which I'm not going to go through today, because all you need to know is that this curiously scaled piece of paper or curiously scaled charts, the chart just is, is perfectly designed such that any data generated by a Weibull distribution will create a straight line. So this is what, um, this is one of the very powerful uses of this thing called Weibull probability probability plotting paper is that if our process, our failure process is described well by a Weibull distribution, 
you'll see straight lines. And yes, these are straight lines. I know they're not straight perfectly, but in the world of probability and statistics, this is what straight looks like. This data set was generated by me. It was artificially synthesized by three Weibull distributions for those parameters I gave you before. So you can see that uh, there is some variation in what uh, these straight lines look like. That's only because failure is a random process and each data point is a random variable itself. Um, so even though there is some variation, these lines are what we, for all intents and purposes, straight. And so I can walk away from this Weibull plot and conclude the Weibull distribution is a pretty good model for each one of my three failure processes. Now, the next thing I can do is remember how the CDF is always 63.212% of the characteristic life. Well, you can see that that horizontal blue line right there represents when the CDF is 63.212. So now I can just draw a line straight down from my data lines, so to speak. And those lines that go, go straight down allow me to estimate the scale parameter for each data set. All those scale parameter is essentially a point by which 63.212% of my things have failed. So without having to do any equations, I now have an estimate for the scale parameter, but it gets better yet because the slope of these lines is going to tell us the most information about our failure process. So you can see here, we have three lines of best fit from our data sets. The blue data set, the slope is the steepest. The green data set, the slope is the shallowest. And the reason being is that each one of these slopes represents the shape parameter. So the uh, green data set, which is from the wearing process, which has zero, uh, which had, as you might recall, we were able to magically know that the uh, shape parameter was 0 0.4. It has the shallowest slope. The wearout data set, the shape parameter of 3.5, has a steeper slope. And so if you're able to do Weibull probability plotting, then you can create these lines and you can, without having to do a single equation, estimate uh, the scale and shape parameters. And now the you might be somewhat intimidated or challenged by the whole act of doing that magical transformation, taking data and putting on these really weird axes, these really weird scales. But it's actually a lot simpler than you think. And there's a lot of help you can get out there um, from software. Perhaps you can get too much help, so to speak, because there's a lot of software where you just put the data in and it will create a wobble plot for you. And if you don't know how the software got to its conclusions, all you turn into is a piece of software yourself where you're just looking for a number to put into a report to make the problem go away. If you understand what the software is trying to do, and how the software generates these lines and these curves and everything else, then you become way more powerful because you know what these things mean. And if you know what these things mean, you're able to see really, really useful characteristics from your failure process, which could just happen to save millions of dollars for, in, uh, for your production process or pre present, prevent any number of crises which would otherwise blow out your schedule, et cetera, et cetera or without using a single equation. So that is why the Weibull distribution is really, really powerful. So let's just do a little bit of revision. I'm going to use, and we're going to do 
use Weibull analysis in the context of this smart lock. Smart lock is one of my centerpiece examples, my webinars and lessons. And it's a wonderful example of a system which involves electronic componentry, traditional mechanic, mechanical lock technology, uh, material science, uh, so on and so forth. Virtually every technology you can think of in today's uh, in today's sort of manufacturing and, and design context is either represented directly or pretty close to being represented in contemporary smart locks because they have these wonderful array of very different components. So our smart lock has 17 components. 16 of them are different. If you count uh, the two different door handles as being the, uh, the same component. And let's just say that we have conducted Weibull analysis on our bolt mechanism. And the Weibull analysis suggests a shape parameter of 0 0.4. What sort of things might be causing our bolt mechanism, mechanism failure if that's what our Weibull analysis is suggesting as a shape parameter of 0 0.4? So anyone who uh, wants to hazard a guess at what might be causing failures for our bolt mechanisms, please ensure that they're not tomato-related uh, failure causes. I'm just talking to you, Fred. Um, what sort of things might be causing these things to these bolt mechanisms to fail if we have a shape parameter of 0 0.4? Assembly fault, manufacturing defects. I wouldn't say life exposure where, um, William, that's sort of rather um, broad, but I, if you're talking about the sort of typical wear and tear you get over the useful life of a system, probably not because a Weibull shape parameter of 0 0.4 implies our thing is has a decreasing hazard rate which means that as our smart lock gets older, provided it's still working, it's less and less likely to fail. Yep, some really good examples there. Again, I wouldn't suggest constant wear and tear. Oh, no worries, all good. Inspection misses, fantastic. Some way, shape or form, a number of imperfect uh, bolt mechanisms are getting through to the end. Now, why is this really, really cool? Because it means that from a number we can we know we're experiencing wear in or we have a decreasing hazard rate and some of the suggestions you came up with are fantastic but straight away i am going to be looking for these sorts of things that are causing the failure of my bolt mechanism manufacturing problems assembly error damage during transportation and not only that if i'm a good manufacturer if i'm trying to break into the market i need to make sure perhaps that i come up with a robust design that mitigates these factors from the very start. For example, if I'm concerned about these defects being called by, caused by incorrect installation, and to the extent that I need to pay someone, pay a certified installer to, to install these uh, smart locks and these consumers' front doors, so to speak, is that design a good design? Is a design where you need to pay someone, pay a homeowner or pay someone to install that lock into a homeowner's front door. Is that a good design versus another design where the homeowner with his or her minimal skill sets is able to relatively easily install a smart lock without causing manufacture or causing wear in, defects, damage, what, what have you. So it's not just manufacturing per se. Sometimes we, yes, we need to go straight to manufacturing. But if those causes are based on things that we can't easily change, like the customer expecting to be able to install, um, install this him or herself, 
then we might need to go back to design. William suggested foolproof the installation. Exactly. We might need to find a way of making this really easy to install. So let's look at some other parts of our smart look. Let's just say we've conducted Weibull analysis on our LED and teeny tiny speaker. And that Weibull analysis for each one of these components suggests a shape parameter of 1.0. What sort of things might be causing our LED or speaker to fail? So what guesses do we have what's causing our thing to fail if the Weibull analysis suggests we have a shape parameter of 1.0? Go a little bit deeper on this one. These are electronic components. What does bad component mean in this context? Hit by tomato. Yes, Redox occur with that. If those tomatoes are being are occurring at a relatively constant rate, I know in Spain the rate the likelihood of being hit by hit by tomato goes up remarkably during one week of the year. But in this case, occasional big door slams like that one, random manufacturing. No, I can't agree with the random manufacturing defects because you'd, you'd see a decreasing hazard rate, current spike, surge, short circuit, which would be causing those things. Fantastic. So what's happening here is that our, our LEDs and speakers, if they have a shape parameter of 1.0 and they're not being hit by Fred's tomatoes, are not getting older, they're not getting younger, they're not getting better, they have a constant hazard rate. So if they're not getting better, so to speak, we can relatively comfortably with some caveats, conclude that there is not a wear-in failure mechanism. There's not defects because as your system ages, you'd expect these failures to decrease over, the rate of failures to decrease over time. Also, wear and tear is out, so to speak, because if the hazard rate is constant, it's not getting older. And so those things like shock loads from door slams, those voltage spikes, those single catastrophic external environmental stresses that when they occur, ruin the day of your LED and speaker, those are the sort of things we're looking for. And now this is, this is fantastic design information because without having to do root cause analysis where you're for LEDs, good Lord, can only imagine what that looks like where they have to you know, cut the LED, uh, the silicon uh, wafer and wow, it's just, it just sounds horrible. And same with the speakers. How would you do root cause analysis and you send it off to a lab and they come back and tell you, well, this thing broke. You don't necessarily need to deal, do all that because if you have a shape parameter of 1.0 and it's an electronic component, I'm looking straight away for voltage spikes and surge protection. If I think long and hard about how this door is being used, is my door being slammed in a way which is not ideal, but unfortunately it's how our customers are going to use our spot lock, so to speak. And so these are the sort of things I'm looking for straight away. I can rule out certain things. I can uh, and focus my attentions on things that are going to matter. And I can do that within an hour. So for example, I can issue an edict to, or not an edict, that sounds very authoritarian, but I can ask the, P, the electrical engineering team, say, hey, what voltage or surge protection do you have for the LED and the speaker? If the answer is none, I need to tell them almost straight away, well, we need to have some in there because initial testing suggests that voltage spikes are one of the likely root causes of failure. Conversely, if we're able to look at uh, and see if there's mechanical damage, we might be able to go straight to, 
oh, there's some sort of shock loads being transfer transferred. How do we transfer shock loads to a lock which is embedded in that door? We slam the door. So straight away, that little number tells me exactly, well, not exactly, it gives me a really good idea of where I need to start looking in order to improve failure. Now let's look at another component of our system, the handle. And preliminary wavelength analysis, analysis suggests a shape parameter of 2.1. What sort of things might be causing our handle to fail if the shape parameter is our best guess? The shape parameter is 2.1. So do your thing. Weather and pressure applied, cool. More of a wear out, concur with that. Where due to turning, I'm guessing. The key thing I'm picking up from the responses is that cycles is how we measure time. Sort of, I'm guessing you're talking about the accumulation of the effects of cycles, door, door opening in that regard. But if, if you are all talking about the accumulation of damage, we are experiencing wear outs. Um, we, long story short, an increasing hazard rate then I fully and wholeheartedly agree with you. Now, some causes for wear out are listed on the screen right now. Glue degradation, fatigue, corrosion, socket plastic deformation. And if we don't have FEMIA, for example, the corrective actions for all these, uh, root, these root causes of failure might already, been done, might already have been done for us. We just now need to go and, and, uh, and implement them. And so this just goes to hopefully illustrate how important that single number can be if you understand what Weibull analysis and Weibull distributions can do for you as a reliability engineer. And I want to leave you with the message that measuring reliability can, is important or can be important, but it's not nearly as important as making reliability happen. So on that note, are there any questions about the Weibull distribution, the little taste of Weibull analysis I gave you, and reliability in general? Any questions at all? Thank you, Anna. That wasn't a question, so it's disqualified, but I'm very glad you wrote that nonetheless. What about combined Weibull plot breakpoints and segments? So William, that's a good question. And the answer to that is uh, somewhat outside the scope of this webinar, but I will, I will try and uh, do some scribbling and maybe come back to it. Uh, let's see if I can get my Weibull plot. So let's just say, uh, William. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'm gonna start drawing on this. So here are, here's a Weibull plot and you have three beautifully straight lines, so to speak. Now, if you see a Weibull plot and your data points trace out a line which looks like something like this, you can see that we have sort of down here, a shallow slope, here a steeper slope, here a, a much steeper slope. You can almost see that we have different regions on our uh, lines of best fit, so to speak. And of course, those are lines are lines of best fit of a bunch of data points. So we're talking about, I'm using blue data points and it's not the best because I'm drawing 
using some of the limitations of a PowerPoint presentation. But um, if you see a wobble plot like this, where it's not a single straight line, but bunches of multiple straight lines, well, all is not lost. I think uh, Adiola is asking the same question, multiple failure modes, because down here, we have a where in. Oh, sorry about the uh, quality of my, my writing. Where in failure. Right here, we might have constant hazard rate failure. And up here, we have wear out. Now, you might be able to look at your data and say, okay, I said, I, rec I believe that the transition between these phases are, are here and here. And that's fantastic. So this can help you, for example, work out when you're servicing in the should be, you shouldn't service if you're if this is a, a product which you service or replace or swap out, you should never service it within this window here because in this window here, there is nowhere out. Not wait out. There's no wear out in this, this interval here. So you know your servicing should be roughly about there. And that's pretty rough, but it's not a to be honest, that sort of analysis is a lot more than um than most organizations do when it comes to maintenance. Now hopefully you can understand the scribble I've put on this wobble plot. So that shows you how you can have multiple failure modes apparent on a wobble plot. You can't use a single wobble distribution to describe the entire system. Uh, and what many awful reliability engineers tend to do is just get lazy or not understand what they're doing and um, uh, later say, oh, okay, so there's a, a bendy line. I'm just going to find the line of best fit through all this data set. And so instead of having three line segments, they go, well, I'm going to draw a single line of best fit. And often that means that results in a single line of best fit which has a beta value of approximately equal to one. And they say, okay, the system has a constant hazard rate. It's never wearing in, it's never wearing out. Therefore, uh, let's, we don't have to, shouldn't service it. We shouldn't do anything. But in fact, if they looked a little bit deeper, they would realize there's three line segments and not just one really oversimplistic line of best fit. Now I'm going to a, <laughs> to another webinar which I routinely give about how to interpret wobble plots, which is outside the scope of this conversation today. But I do think it's important to, to uh, for you to get a taste of what the art of the possible is and why the wobble distribution, which enables all this, is really powerful. I can see that Bill asked also how we get the ETA value or, or, um, or characteristic life. I'll just go to the slide that helps us do that. Just as revision, um, Oh, no, that was, oh, geez. Sorry about that. That slide there. That's how we estimate the ETA or characteristic life or scale parameter where we have, if we have lines, if we have data creating lovely straight lines, that's the first caveat. And those straight lines go through that uh, horizontal line, which represents 63.2%. If you scroll right down, um, then let me get a different color. I'll go back to red. Right here, that might be, I don't know, let's just say that's 10. That's not going to be wet. That might be 18. That might get on the, on the horizontal axis, that might be 22. That might be 31. And so that tells you how 
how it's um uh, that is a is a way of graphically estimating the scale parameters directly from your Weibull plot. Hopefully that answers your question. And David points out that failure analysis is always important in untangling combined failure data. Yes, if you can get a root cause analysis, if if it's you can work out you know what's causing each one of these data points to fail very start that can that usually makes analysis really easy or a lot easier but if you don't have that information all is not lost that wobble plot with those different failure modes can be really really help easy to easy to identify and helpful to uh for a lot of decision making any more questions or comments is it used to run multiple oh, i just want to make sure i understand the question is it used to run multiple weibull analysis using is it useful to run multiple weibull analysis using different eaters or etters i don't fully understand that i uh for example when you run when you run a uh, when you run an analysis um that part of the analysis is to work out what that eta value is so the analysis will give you the eta value as opposed to using a different eta value so i'll probably need you to clarify william will asked william harwood asked will a line of a best fit line always show constant failure rate absolutely not for example you can see um you if you if you might remember the slope of these lines gives you the, the shape parameter and so you can see that depending on the you've got three different lines of best fit, only one of them has a implies a constant failure rate. Only one of them will give you a slope of exactly equal to one. Uh, so a line of best fit will help you work out what the shape parameter is, um, and it could be anything. Thank you, Michael, for that feed feedback. So can we use Weibull with only one failure mode? The technical answer is yes, you can only use a Weibull distribution to model one failure mode, but it's really easy to combine the two. You have to use what we call system reliability modeling, um, where we combine more than one uh, basic event, so to speak. Um, so it's it's quite possible, but the, you, a Weibull distribution, a single Weibull distribution can only model a single failure mode. If that's your question, that's the answer to it. Thank you for that uh, feedback, Dave. David, much appreciated. Thank you, Bill. Is there software or application that will break down complex Weibull plot or data? The answer is yes. I don't want to badmouth any one of them, but I also, and there are, one in particular is not bad, and I don't want to advocate, I'm about to say some, give give it, give it all these things mixed reviews. Uh, so I don't want to uh, drop names. It's just inherently challenging. Um, I do it, but I don't use software. It's, it's quite a few things you need to look for when you do the analysis and it might sound trivial, but it's not, especially when you need to create things like confidence bounds or use that to work out, optimize um, servicing intervals or, or things like that. Um, and the software packages that I'm aware that do this, that are out there, um, you, as a minimum, they, re they recommend having a hundred data points. Um, and so that's not always useful um especially if you're interested in the first few uh few phase which as a rule most of us are um 
there's, there's, there's options besides Reliasoft. And yes, Reliasoft is one that can do multiple um, failure modes and mechanisms. Again, I, I really don't want to get into uh, doing the pros and cons of software packages um, right now. If that, uh, that might be frustrating for listeners. And one of the reasons, it's one of the reasons why I, I do it all with my own MATLAB coding. Um, it's, but there are, there are things you need to be looking for. And if you just do a, a, a data in, data out approach or numbers out approach without understanding what those pitfalls are, you're just asking for trouble. And as a rule, um, uh, again, I'll go back to those, the first few data points are usually the most important. And so you might only need to introduce a white or create a widely distribution for the first 5% of your failures. And that's all you need because you know you're not interested in working out when the last of your million devices are going to fail. You need to know when the first 5% are going to fail because that's what your warranty period allows you to do. Oh, sorry, allows your company to tolerate. And so even if your system has multiple failure mechanisms and multiple failure modes, which it will, you might only be interested in modeling the uh, failure mode, which dominates the first 5% of failures. And so that's almost, uh, it's a scenario where you have multiple failure modes, but using a single wobble distribution to model the first, the, the one of those failure modes. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's sort of a rambling answer, but it is challenging to get, uh, to get software out there to, to characterize um, uh, multiple failure modes in a very automated way. And if you do, you need to have, as a rule, 100 or so data points, which means you need to have no, no, no suspended data points. So you need to test everything till failure. If you have a, a service life of 10 years, good luck getting that information. So it's a, it's a challenging question to answer in a very um, fair way. The technical answer is yes, you can do it, but you need to be experienced and know what you're looking for to make sure you don't make any incorrect conclusions. And I'd, I'd, I'd second the comment William made regarding R. Not a problem, Satya. Have we exhausted our questions? Are we done? Or are we just exhausted? The answer to that question, Jay, is yes, this webinar and presentation, along with all other webinars, and I dare say, are you referring to accompanying workbooks or notes? That's, they are always posted on the Ascendo website. It's just a matter of time. Uh, it takes for us to get produced and then uploaded. Thank you very much. So we're starting to get a lot of thank yous, a lot of, lot of well dones, which usually means there are no more questions to be asked. But that said, if we finish today's conversation and you walk away and then you think of an amazing question, please feel free to reach out. You've got our contact details, but uh, thank you very much for turning up um, and uh, supporting what we do at Ascendo and looking forward to seeing you uh, my next webinar. I got it wrong last time and Fred... I had to change a sequence. So what's what's my next webinar, Fred? I've got it here. Let me pull it up. My next webinar is about something amazing. That's all you need to know. Not true. It has a... Uh, I really need to get slicker at this. It is why redundant systems aren't always redundant. When we talk about how you can seemingly invest a lot of money into creating a redundant component, 
but it doesn't deliver the reliability performance you were hoping. Okay, Fred, I think we're done unless I've missed any questions that you might've picked up on. Please forward any tomato related questions to Fred. I like tomatoes in terms of eating them, uh, but I prefer other people to make the stuff. That's how I use tomatoes. I use with four tomatoes. So on, on the Weibull, he's looking. <laughs> A lot of corporate knowledge about tomatoes waiting to be unleashed on the Ascendo crowd. Okay, I think we're good. Thank you very much.